you cannot imagine how nice the the world if you have a good passport and how hard the world if you have a bad passport but if you don't have this passport you are not a human anymore you are nothing i believe uh, that the bird he can live without his wings but i don't believe that the human he can live without his passport if he leave his country Welcome back to Portals, a virtual taste of the International Literature Festival Dublin, taking you beyond your radius. I'm Kaylin Hogan, and today I'll be speaking with Rodana Galidi, author of Two Blankets, Three Sheets, translated by Jonathan Reeder and published by World Editions. Rodan, great to have you with us. You're based in Zvola in the Netherlands. How has the situation been there with the pandemic over the last few weeks? Yeah, it's very safe because uh, the, the negative side of the Dutch culture is they have a distance between them and the another, always 20 meter or 10 meter and now we need one and a half meter and we have it already between and it's very safe everybody go outside we go to the park or to the supermarket you don't mention that there is a corona crisis or something like that and how is the situation back in iraq do you still have friends and family there that you're in contact with during the pandemic my family because we live all in a, in, a, in one house in baghdad they cannot be one and a half meter from each other because they are about 30 people in one house. And they have sometimes no water to wash them hands. And they need to work every day to make money for them life. And they are really very scared of the corona because if somebody gets it, everybody in home will get it. But they have very much experience with dangerous situation. They, they are doing it very fine, actually, very good. If I compare the situation in Holland and in Iraq, my God, you can see how rich Holland and how poor Iraq. Because here, even in the supermarket, everybody have the distance and you can buy everything. You, the water you have at home, the electricity in Iraq. In some places, you have nothing. I'm really excited to talk to you about your novel, which you describe as a humorous account of a nine-year wait. It documents the exodus of a man named Samir Karim through Jordan, Thailand, many different countries to reach the Netherlands, and then the Kafkaesque system he faces when he reaches there, and the nine years he spends within that system. Do you want to read us a short passage from the book? Yes, I will read very short passage. The Netherlands has taught me three things. One, the difference between a granny bike and ladies bike. Two, that you must be at least a worry of Europe as you are respectful. Three, 
clever lie is better than clumsy truth. I remember that passage from the very start of the book, and it really captures those hard truths Samir learns within the system. There's also a very funny scene later on in the book where people are learning to cycle for the first time. Um, did you learn to cycle yourself when you were there? Yeah, because you, you must cycle in Holland. It's really very strange when you walk in Holland. In Iraq, it's very strange when you cycle, but in Holland, it's really, you need a bike also, not one. You need a few bikes, one to bike outside the city, one to the station, one to the center of the city. It's really very important, the bike. So tell us about how you came to write Two Blankets, Three Sheets. It's not your first book, and you speak about one reader that really made it possible. Tell us about that and the process of writing this novel. His name is Adrian van Dis. He's a very famous writer here. He asked me about my situation in the refugees camp and in the system. And I told him I don't want to tell anything about it. It's very painful. And he asked me to send him a story every month. And he followed me more than three years. And uh, after three years, when I, I finished the story, he said to me, threw my name outside the book and sent it to the publisher. And so it, it came together through those, those short passages. Yeah. Um, Without Adrian van this, this book is not exist. He's the father of the book. And at the beginning, you speak about the line between fiction and nonfiction. And I'll actually read out what you write. You say... This book is fiction for the reader who cannot believe it, but for anyone open to it, it is non-fiction. Or no, let this book be fiction so that the world I had to inhabit all those years will be transformed from fiction into fact. How did you decide to write this as a novel, and were you concerned about the reader being biased in some way against the narrator if you wrote this as non-fiction? I was scared uh, that the Dutch reader he cannot believe in the book because he believe in his system more than in the human. And sometimes the Dutch person, he believe in the system uh, even more than himself. And I thought I must find a way that he believes that this happened, but he have a possibility to say, oh, that is not happening. It's just nice story. Because of that, I said that in the beginning. But if I had the possibility to write this book in my own language, in Arabic, I don't say that because I know that the reader maybe will believe in it. And you wrote this book in Dutch. It was translated from the Dutch. Um, how was that to write, write in Dutch? Was it different from, from writing it in, in Arabic, do you think, in the way it came together? The Arabic language is very beautiful, but not honest language, because you must play with words. You are not allowed to say something bad about God or about the king or about the president or about the country. You are all the time busy with what not allowed. In Dutch, you are all the time busy with the possibilities. The Dutch language give you the freedom the arabic language make you scared to make mistake i love very much dutch language let we say arabic language is my mother 
but the Dutch language is my wife. I like my wife more than my mother. <laughs> so it gave you, the language itself gave you a freedom to write differently. You know, Goethe said ever, you will never be allowed to make something great in a foreign language. I believe in that. Because after 20 years, I still using five or six dictionaries to write one page. But I love the Dutch language because it's really kind of discovering the language all the time. Discovering the possibilities, not in my head, but in the language itself. And that is giving me a lot of energy and a lot of ideas. It's Dutch language is very direct and very clear. And you write poetry also? Yes, when I feel I am weak and alone and I write poems, when I feel I am strong, I write stories. It's the poems is my psychological uh, reader and the stories is just I throw my thought in the papers. I love poems more than stories sometimes. They can, I think they can connect with a reader on a different level sometimes, it's true. Tell us about your own uh, journey, Rodan, to the Netherlands. Um, and Samir arrives in, in 1998 to Schiphol Airport and to the Netherlands after a very long journey. Um, what was your own experience of, of first coming to the Netherlands and the journey that took you there? My sister was studying to be a lawyer in Iraq. Once she told me that Sweden and Holland is the more tolerant countries in Europe, I thought, oh, it's great. And uh, my sister told me, because they are studying the law there in Iraq, that even the animals in Holland, they have a right to good life. I thought I am arrived to the Schiphol airport in Amsterdam. I am safe. But the reality was really very different than what I heard about Holland. The system is really very different than the media and the people in the street. It's really a very hard system. If you have number, the system in Holland is the paradiso, the heaven. If you don't have that number, the system is the hell, but really the hell. And when you say number, Rodan, you mean the, as in the papers or the residence permission? Yeah, you, if you have a number, they can enter it in the system and you belong to the system, you are a human. You, the system is great. He protects you. He gives you everything what you need to be human. But if you don't have this number, the system is the hell. He wants to burn you. He wants to throw you out. He don't protect you from yourself, from his uh, animals who are working in this system. It's, I never, I read a lot of European books. I never, ever read a page who explained to me how work the system in some European country. And that's, that's a really important point, because I think, you know, we don't have many novels that show the experiences of people within the asylum system. In Ireland, we have a similar system called direct provision, where people spend also many years in a, in a type of limbo waiting for permission to stay. And there there is one writer who, who has written about 
her own experiences here, but there aren't many accounts um, in the words of people who've experienced it firsthand. And so, you know, I think many people come with a very idealistic uh, view of what these countries are like and they arrive and the way they are treated is so different from from how they imagined um, it would be. Uh, and that conflict is very present in, in your book, I think, between the idealism of what Europe is and the reality. Yes, but I understand also why it took a lot of time to sometimes look to the story of the refugees in Holland. Because uh, I believe that Holland want to help refugees. Holland want to give the refugees a safe area. I believe in that absolutely. But the problem what I uh, saw in all these years that if they help 10 people, 100 people will come. If they help 100 people, 1,000 people will come. If they have 1,000, half million will come. It's really very difficult situation. And Holland, they don't want to give just paper but to the refugees. They want to give them completely a life, and that is very difficult. And that makes the system like that. Or I give you everything, or I take everything from you. And what it was difficult for me in the system in Holland, when they let me more than nine years in the refugees camp, and they didn't let me go to another country to ask asylum there. Because they said in the Geneva, you are allowed to ask asylum in just one country. In that point, I was angry of the system in Holland. In just that point, you know. That's actually a, a regulation called the Dublin regulation. So unfortunately, my city, our city, lends its name to that, that regulation. It, both yourself and I think um, one of the Dutch women that you mentioned who volunteers at the centre speaks about it being worse than a prison because there is no there is no end date there is no sort of knowledge of how long your sentence will be um so that that waiting seems to be the worst part of the experience in 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 the refugees camp you know you all europe how big is this europe they change all europe to the kind of laptop and you are sitting that laptop and somebody work and using that laptop, if he let you out that laptop, give you some numbers, you have all Europe. If he don't give you this number, you stay in that laptop. You cannot do anything. I, I was a civil engineer. I even wasn't allowed to use my diploma as a volunteer just to don't lose the knowledge of uh, the to be engineered and you, you describe um life within the asylum center you know very vividly and you you know have the different floors that are color coded and so many people who've been there for many many years um what what do you remember most from from the time within that center, what sticks in your mind from all those years? It's a very poetic question. I was living in the orange part of the refugees camp. All the world was orange. Even now when Holland play on the football, I cannot see it because 
the addresses of the players are orange. <laughs> I, I, and I know some people was living in the blue part. They don't like blue anymore. You get crazy if you live all the years in kind of color. And after a few years, you forget you are coming from a country or city. No, you are coming from orange. Really, you began to be kind of machine. Samir's experience, he's staying in a room with two other men. So there's there's no privacy within the center. And I think that's something that you show, you know, that, that inability to escape, to be on your own at all, to sleep. Um, you know, uninterrupted by snoring and or anything else. Uh, very t- difficult to have time to yourself within that center. Yeah, and, and, and that is not for one month or one week or one weekend. And it's not just two. Sometimes you sleep in one big room with four men. And then if they fight against each other or they, oh, it's, it's really the, you know, Jumbo Sartre said ever, the hill is the others. Mm. I say now the hill is the refuges in one room. Being stuck in one room. I think many of us under lockdown, even in one house or one apartment with each other are feeling that um, or you know, struggling with it. So being in one room for nine years. Nine years, but but it's a, and you feel that some people are waiting more than nine. They, I know somebody from Yemen, he was waited 16 years. And that's often after a long journey there as well to begin with. Um, you talk about it being the, the pre-internet days. Uh, you know, obviously this was in the 90s uh, and you travel through um, many different countries to, to reach the Netherlands. And I think throughout the book, you have moments where, you know, Westerners are, are sort of, you know, you know, very intrigued to hear these stories and, and do they treat it almost like entertainment. And you have a moment as well with the tourists in Thailand who are saying, you know, you, you and I are the same, you know, these kind of uh, young tourists um claiming that, you know, you and him were exactly the same and that, you know, there should be no borders and no money and, and you know, this kind of, these radical views. Uh, and, and you say, okay, well, you know, give me your passport, give, you, give me your money if you don't believe in those things. Yeah, I was living in the streets. Sometimes two days I have nothing to eat or to just say, uh, sometimes we drink very bad water, we get sick and he was speaking about award without monies or passport but he was sitting in a terrace he was eating i said please i believe well in money and passport give it to me and live the life without money and passport tell us about that journey from thailand to the netherlands and i you know there's moments where you're you have to go through so many different passports and it's almost like you have to take on a new identity every time uh, and we see Samir sort of struggle with that learning off all the details and becoming a new person almost every time he has to get a new passport and how the passport you know kind of like you say um, is the only way to to be treated as human or treated with any respect look I believe uh, that the bird he can live without his wings 
But I don't believe that the human, he can live without his passport if he leaves his country. You cannot imagine how nice the, the world if you have a good passport and how hard the world if you have a bad passport. But if you don't have this passport, you are not a human anymore. You are nothing. You are not allowed to sleep sometimes. You are not allowed to walk not allowed to look to some eating on the street or in the rubbish or you are nothing and 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 when uh, i was traveling without passport some european was traveling there and when they uh, need some money they sell them passport for thousand dollar or 500 or 2000 and they go to the embassy and they pay $100 or 50 and they get another one. And we use this passport sometimes if we have money. But if you don't have money, you are not even uh, have the possibility to buy a passport like that. And I was using Greece passport, Spanish passport, Italian, all kind of passport of the country where my black hair can exist with the passport, you know? <laughs> And uh, and once I was buying a Dutch passport because I saw the original, the owner of the passport in his picture was black. I thought if the black person could be Dutch, me also, and I bought it. And uh, yes, it was really very difficult to have a false passport because if you're traveling, you are very happy to arrive somewhere but if you have passport you are very happy that you are traveling but when you are arrived you are very scared that they will catch you because the the risk is being detained and and the treatment that you well that samir faces in the book the treatment that he faces in detention is is very violent at times and and very traumatic I was traveling in my childhood with my grandfather in the desert between Saudi Arabia and Iraq. We using donkey to travel. We didn't have papers. We had just water. In Thailand, I thought a lot about that freedom we had in the desert. We was very free to travel. We didn't have the papers. We didn't have the numbers. We just have some water and the donkey. I think if somebody told me in that time that this is the freedom, I will never will be able to run away from Iraq, maybe. And yet uh, we see the bureaucracy in, in Iraq as well. There's a moment where after you've come to Europe, your family have to pay to declare you dead in Iraq and to get a certificate saying so, to, to protect them. Yes, I will tell you something. My name is not Rodan. My name is Riyadh in Iraq. And they pay money, they make me Rodan, and they make Riyadh is gone. And, and uh, in Iraq, really, the only country what the people pay to get killed or died and to run away from Iraq safely. This name change was to protect them also because, of course, you were afraid of the military service in Iraq, as many people are, and that's why you left. But there is often retribution against families if people do manage to leave. 
Yes, because if they cut you on the border uh, with false name, they don't know which family you have. They cannot hurt your family. They, they are not so clever with uh, these things. And they don't have in that time computers to check it or something like that. In the time of Saddam Hussein, if you run away and they catch you, they hurt your family also. Because of that, we paid money uh, to change our name. It must have been very worrying, and we see that fear in the novel. But your family were also telling you to go. They wanted you to be safe. Yes, yes. But you know, even uh, the last four years, I lost my brother because of ES I, and my sister. He saw that he died in heart attack. Very sorry to hear that, Rodan. There's a moment in the novel where Samir's father is dying and he is trying desperately to get home. Can you tell us about that, the cruelty of a system not allowing you to leave at a moment of loss like that, and his father dying without him getting to see him for a last time? My father, he called me when I was in the refugees camp and he said, I want to see you in Jordania to say goodbye. Can you travel to me? And I travel to you from Iraq. But because uh, I couldn't have the answer of the Minister of Justice to have the paper, he spoke to him and he died after that. So your your father died without you getting to see him for, for a last time? Yes, but it happened not just with me, with a thousand Iraqis. They died. Uh, Iraq is not a country to live, but a country to die. What a pity. It's not a country, Iraq. There's a moment in the novel where Samir speaks about being able to tell how long someone has been in the asylum center just by looking at the thickness of their file, of their dossier. So people within that system become defined by their papers, by that weight for papers. How does that affect a person being defined by a piece of paper? You know, I think after the fourth or fifth year in a refugee's camp, we lost the hope. We lost our health and we began to be kind of, I don't know what, a kind of dying people walking all the time in this building from the Orania to the blue to the orange to the green to the Orania. Uh, no one talked to anyone, no one laughed, no one make joke, no one say, I will do that when I get paper, I will do this. It began to be very quiet building. It's a kind of dead building. And your novel tells the stories of so many different people within the center that you come to know and, and we hear about their lives and their journeys. What made you want to write about about all the different people that you you know that you met or you might have known in the center? It, it was I actually it was we was uh, five hundred fifty people in this building five hundred fifty people, a lot of languages, a lot of uh, cultures, a lot of colors, and and uh, it was impossible to control all these different people in this small area. Because of that, sometimes you see the foreign people walking there, the reception, the social deans, and, and 
and you are busy always to be quiet there more than to to be human actually and but also it i think there were friendships formed and and you come to know people very well within the center um and samir tells their stories throughout the novel um so is there a sense of community as well when you're there yes there is a place there to that everybody can sit there it was very very important place but there was no activities there sometimes very sometimes somebody play music as volunteer or make some art but uh, it's not always in that time in the time of my of, in my time in the refugees camp i don't know the situation now but uh what i missed in that time the literature in the refugees camp i want to connect with the literature world in holland i never saw writer or poet uh, visiting the refugees camp reading his story or telling about the literature in holland that i missed it very much in that time so connection with writers and and that world um you tell the stories of many of the individuals who who stayed in the center whose story stays with you the most from the book the russian girl elena i was surprised to see her there because she's in european i thought the european people don't need to be refugees and she was a bl- bl- blonde girl with the blonde hair she looked very dutch and everybody thought she's not refugees and uh, and because of the color of her hair she have kind of uh, power there in the building everybody have respect for her it was really very funny to see that that the color of the hair in that building have very much power and you become quite you, you become good friends with her throughout the the book samir does yeah i know the russian literature very well in the 19th century and i know chekhov tolstoy pushkin mayakovsky um uh, lermontov uh, and and i talk with her about uh, this writers and she sometimes read me a poem of pushkin in uh, russian or oh, it was wonderful and you speak in the novel or samir speaks about the experiences of women in these centers particularly the exploitation that they face uh you know that people are outside of the center are constantly trying to rope them into uh into prostitution that you know w- within the center because of the lack of money to support their children and their families sometimes i told you something uh, if there is a nice girl in the refugees camp and uh, they try to get her for a prostitute no one protect her from them outside and they try to get her in the in this dirty business and it the refugee system in holland is really very dangerous for a girl without family or somebody to protect her from these people outside another side of that is really was strange to experience uh, to experience that if somebody come playing very good football and still a young 
he don't need to in the refugees come because they the, some people come and they make a test for him if he's a professional football they took him that means the the rules of the system is not that important if if there is a very nice girl also some people took care to you understand it was really strange to experience that in a very nice country as Holland that there's an exploitation whether it's by you know taking the good footballers to suit the soccer team or or yeah they have system they have respect for rules but the football is up the rules if i remember an african boy he was 19 or 18 years he was a very good footballer he couldn't stay a few weeks and they took him in some club to play there and he come every month to to make a signature that he's still in Holland and then we never saw him again and the nice girls also they took them to some business and i thought my god they have they have rules they have a very european system uh, full of humanity but if somebody a good footballer or a nice sexy girl then the rules and the system have another uh, side to go on with them and and so it's it's very i mean it's very confusing i think being in that system and it, there's no yeah there being bound by rules and your whole life defined by this bureaucracy that but then those rules can be broken very simply it seems but you can you can see that you you get confused you say my god the country is very nice is no mafia on the street no one kill somebody or something very safe very correct but you see that the mafia going on the people can take somebody because he can play good football i went to the social dinst i said to them look the boy went outside the, the refugees camp because he can play with good football i can play good with words can i go outside the refugees camp they was laughing on me and samir goes to such measures to try and escape that system that asylum system because of the you know after so many years he uses the cement to to try and change his fingerprints even to to get to germany because of the sort of torture of of being within that that endless bureaucracy yes because uh, it, you feel that the system is great when you saw it from inside but when you are in the system is very dirty sometimes and i thought i want to go to another country i went to norway even to sweden to germany i asked refugees with another name but they discover my finger stems you know in the computer and they send me back and also you go through a sort of period of detention and tell us about um about the story of kadem uh who you tried to reach germany with and who um died by suicide in the center one of many people during samir's time there who take th- takes their own life this boy i i know him personally i i i know eight people they suicide they kill themselves in the refugees camp eight people they kill themselves but kadem was a good friend of me and he tried to uh, uh, he want to get the paper to go to the abu dhabi or dubai to some families there but 
after a lot of years waiting, he cannot wait anymore. And he was a very proud uh, person. He don't want somebody yeah, treat him not good or something. And they could break his soul, you know. He cannot anymore and he killed himself. But the people, if they know, want to know the story, they can read maybe the book. Yes, absolutely. Um, it is a, a problem problem within the system we have here as well. And uh, similar issues with, you know, the burial of, of, you know, the respectful burial at the end as well. And having information for people who are friends with, with the person who has passed away. There's uh, not a lot of respect paid, I think. Um, to to the concerns of people who've lost a friend. But I think that across Europe, the attitudes towards asylum seekers and refugees is has changed a lot in the last few years. You see the rise of the far right in Europe. Um, and how, you know, how are asylum seekers seen by the Dutch people? Or how did you feel um, seen when you were within that system and and how is it now as someone who is you know has dutch citizenship who is living and and riding there um does that continue that discrimination the dutch people uh, i heard 30 years ago they feel okay when the refugees coming from the dangerous area they feel a little bit proud oh we have a safe country the people can be safe in our country. But after 1998, it changed a lot. They began to feel scared from refugees or angry on the refugees. Because uh, some people who like, uh, yeah, some people feel that the refugees people took them chance to have a good life in their own country. Some people think, oh, our culture uh, now in danger because these people are coming a lot to our country to uh, with them color, with them wars, with them uh, religion. And, and I think every year getting better in Holland. And I, I feel that I can understand why Dutch people are scared because uh, Holland is a very small country, and we are uh, yes, yeah. We, I think, uh, I can understand them situation. Um, but it's the refugees now in Holland; they are not welcome anymore. I don't think so. Have you seen that change more over the last few years, in particular? Yes, uh, in the beginning, you see some people are angry, people. But now the police are angry, the media, the radio, the television. Now the angry is not just in the street, but everywhere. The bus driver now, he looks to the color of your hair sometimes, the, 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 in the train, in the airplane. They have allergics now. We began to be kind of corona. We are very dangerous. But uh, 18 years ago, it was just some people. But now, no. Also, the half of the system are uh, really want to get us outside the country. And uh, it's, uh, it's, yes, it's changing very, very fast. 
and uh, and 20 years ago in Holland or 18 years ago you see another people in the political life in Holland people speaking about economy and now speaking just about refugees foreign but last few weeks just about corona is it the same little bit but the last year speaking about just the refugees the refugees the refugees we don't want them anymore we are tired of them they take our money our country they make a lot of children we have no time to make children but they have time and they bring our them religion with the, them to here to the to the country and the problem is you have some refugees who are changing uh, who they began to be Dutch, they hear these things. But the refugees who don't learn Dutch and who don't listen to the Dutch media, they don't nothing about that. That means the good refugees must pay the price for the bad refugees. You understand me? Yes, there's a moment in the book where there's a, a general from Iraq who uh, one of the the fellow refugees n recognizes as someone who he, he believes committed war crimes and he tries to report it, but no one will no one will listen to him or believe him within the system. No, they don't care about who you was in your country. Are you a soldier or killer? They don't care about the, that. They care about that you are quiet and your story, who you told to them in the beginning is okay, good story. And as a writer, how has that affected you, that, that process of being made to tell your story over and over within that system and and that that kind of fear of not being believed or being questioned constantly, has that changed you as, as a writer? Yes, because once I told a girl, she said to me, how long you was in the refugees camp? I said, nine and a half years, actually. She said to me, what? I said, no, no, I mean, I was making joke. It was nine months and a half. She said, nine and a half months? That is very long. We was in Italy in the bad hotel two weeks. It was so long. <laughs> I began to, I began to lie the truth. Just to be not, yeah, it's a situation like that. I, uh, the truth now is not important for me, but just to telling a story who the people can understand. It's really very bad for writer to have no respect for the truth anymore. <laughs> <laughs> but you show, I think, through the novel how the system it almost encourages people to lie or forces people to lie. Um, and from the smuggler, the smugglers who tell people to, you know, to change their stories to pretend they're less educated because that means, you know, that they will get a quicker asylum process. Um, to constantly being being disbelieved within the system, it 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 kind of makes it feel like there is no truth within that system. Yeah, no, because after, after eight years in the refugees camp, I published my first novel, okay? And then I sent it to the organization who decide if you, have a, if you are allowed to stay in Holland or not, you know? But they said, yeah, but this book is not prove that you are a writer because when you came to Holland you wasn't 
writer because you didn't have a books. And it's really very funny that they look to the the logic of them is like that. It's really crazy. Mm, you're constantly having to sort of justify yourself. I will tell you something very important for me to, to, to say it. You know, if you have no good country, if your country changes you and refuses, you know, you must be angry of your country, not of the another countries, you know. I respect what the Dutch people do. I'm not angry of them. I am angry of Iraq, who making us refugees last 50 years. Iraq is the biggest fabric for refugees. And the situation within the asylum centres now too, because that has been an issue here in Ireland, that cases have have been reported in within these centres where people, you know, are sharing rooms with uh, strangers and can't distance at all. Is that an issue in the Netherlands as well? I I don't know the situation in the refugees come now because I stopped to be to work as a volunteer as a translator when the corona began. And uh, I I really don't know the situation now. But I think Holland is very good. They organize it very good, I think. And working as a volunteer and as, as a translator before the pandemic, do you see a change in, in the conditions in the centres there? Or do you see similar stories that you tell through this novel? I see the people working with refugees, the Dutch people are more aggressive, more military than uh, before. They are uh, very, yes, very angry without reason. Why do you think that is? Why do you think there is such an anger there? Because I think uh, the media last uh, 20 years, I followed the media in Holland to make my Dutch language better and better. The media changed there a lot. The media uh, 18 years before have a, a positive side about refugees and negative. And now is no positive side anymore. They said, we are finished. We are finished. We don't want them anymore. Uh, we don't want them anymore. We have enough of them. And you've seen a change in how people are treated then within the centers. No, I think, and I think now they do it very, I think, I don't think that the people now waiting years, 15 years, 16 years, I don't think so, same before, because it costs them money to let people waiting. But I think that the system now is really very aggressive. Uh, they don't want refugees anymore. And uh, for writers within, you know, within the centers like yourself that went through the asylum system who are trying to write their, their novel or their book, do you have any advice or for publishers and how they can help sort of, you know, encourage people to, to write about their experience or reach out? Oh, the, this is the golden time to write. You don't need publisher. You don't need editor. You have just your telephone. And you can put everything, films. Somebody, uh, 17 years ago, somebody killed himself. We didn't know how we make film about his body or how they treat it. But now everybody has telephone. He can put it in one second in the internet. And what, what impact do you hope the novel has? 
do you hope that it changes people's minds or what what do you hope for for your novel no actually the book he changed my mind actually i was very tired of all this story in my head now i have it in paper i think i hope that when the people read it they will feel happy that they have passport they have their country they don't need to run away they don't need to be refugees i don't want to change their mind about refugees but i want them to change their mind about them on life that they must be more satisfied more happy uh, about oh i have my passport i go tomorrow to New Zealand or I want or to Spain or to Italy. I want, it's, I see it as a spiritual book. It makes you happy with what you have. <laughs> and it, I think it shows, it shows for people within a country like the Netherlands that it, you, their situation can be very different within that same system. That, you know, you don't have to be in a country like Iraq within a system in the Netherlands, you can be treated very badly depending on how the authorities view you. Yeah, I will tell you something. If I translate the book to Iraqi language, to the Arabic, the people will never see the system very hard. They will see, my God, Rodan was all this year living in the building. They didn't kill him. They gave him money to eat. They gave him shower to wash his body to cook, they will see it as a very wonderful situation. <laughs> and that is wonderful. You know, sometimes I, when I call my family and I told them about this nine years, they said, oh my God, if your brother was there, he didn't get killed. If your uncle was there, he didn't die. If your death, death. And that is, I compare my life in Holland with my life in Baghdad, not uh, with the, the life of Dutch people outside the refugees camp. I think, you know, we are rich when we think positive. And I, I always think positive about uh, things around me. And there, that, that shines through in this novel. I think there is so much humor and humanity and, and positivity. And we're asking every writer, uh, Rodan, in this series what freedom means to them in this moment. I wanted to get your thoughts on that. Oh, my freedom in this moment is actually the music. I close my eyes and I listen to Spanish music I'm in Spain, to Italian music I'm in Italy, to Portuguese music I'm in Portugal. The music is my vacation. The music is my health because no corona or any disease can make one song sick or some or angry. The music is staying always very nice. I yes, this is my freedom now. That's beautiful. And in, in the novel Samir plays guitar, do you also play an instrument yourself? I, I, uh, my, the, the guitar is my best friend. I try to learn it in the war between Iraq and Iran. And I still have the guitar. I have no talent to be guitarist, but I have talent to be friend with the guitar. And I love the guitar very much. Wonderful. And is there anything you're reading at the moment that you would recommend? Yes. Oh my God. This, 
This, this is very nice question. I am reading now John Faust, the collector. I just find it in some uh, second hand as an old book, and it is wonderful. I read it, I think, many years ago, and I do remember it being very uh, beautifully written. Yeah, it's a wonderful book. How we couldn't make a book like that? It's a wonderful book. Are you working on another book at the moment, Rodan? Yes, I, I am working uh, with a book about uh, beauty, money, and fascism, and love. And it will, will it be another novel? Uh, yeah, yes, because uh, I, I, now I discovered last year all the people in Europe are angry about refugees and tourists. They don't want tourism anymore. They don't want refugees anymore. But there is no writer speaking about these fascist people or Nazis are grow up in Europe. No one writes about them. And I thought I would write a book about them, but not just about them, but about the beauty and the money and the love. And then the, I will make the book less heavy, actually. Yes, I think you do that through this novel as well. You know, it's it's it definitely shows the difficult moments throughout um, that experience, but it shows uh, the the good moments as well and the positivity. I think this is the the the. I love the literature when there is a light also, not just dark. It must be balanced between between light and dark in the literature. Otherwise, I don't like Tessa Eliot, always dark. I like, I like very much Philip Larkin. There is a light feeling, you understand me? Philip Larkin, you said, yeah, the poet. Yeah, Philip Larkin, I love more than Tessa Eliot. Tessa Eliot, always old, very old, very ugly, very busy in his head, nothing is good. But Philip Larkin, busy with very little daily things. And even when he's sad, he's very happy. And I think your your own work, yeah, finds those moments of, of light and, and of, of happiness. And it's it's a brilliant read, Rodan. So thank you so much for taking the time today. Thank you. Bye. Rodana Galidi's book, Two Blankets, Three Sheets, is available now through our festival bookseller, The Gutter Bookshop. We've come to the end of the Portal series, but hope you can join us soon at the festival when the lockdown truly ends. Thanks for listening in and thanks to our sponsors. The International Literature Festival Dublin is an initiative of Dublin City Council, kindly supported by the Arts Council.